Please turn with me to Acts chapter 17 as we will complete this chapter today. Acts chapter 17 will begin at verse 21. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord, ask for his help with the text. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we will be shown our own sinfulness, our own idolatry. Father, help us to not look down our noses at these Athenians and the gods that they worship because were it not for you, we would be just like them. And we still are, even in spite of what you've done for us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us open up your word, convict us of our sin, show us the truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as I read through this, and particularly verse 21, about the idea of spending time in the telling and hearing of new things, it makes me think of, of course, my profession and with with teenagers. The other day I was watching a few students who were doing something weird with one of their hands. And, of course, if anyone is doing anything, everyone is filming it because it's just the way life is nowadays. And they were, like, putting their hand against their face or something weird like like this. I I, I feel stupid even doing it. Looking through the hole in their finger and and, like, talking, like, saying, Can you do that, Mr. Chipman? As if it was, like, some sort of, like magic thing that if you can do that like I said do what put my hand on my face in weird backwards way there's really nothing to understand I I was just shocked I didn't understand they thought I was weird for not understanding it Um, apparently some internet celebrity did that so of course the students were trying to emulate that and take pictures of themselves because everyone's a celebrity nowadays because of the webs Uh, silly as it sounds it's the culture that we live in Last year, what was the newest craze? It was eating uh, Tide Pods, right? Eating like laundry detergent. A few years before that, it was just getting cinnamon and putting it in your mouth. I don't get it. Um, I mean, if you try to keep up, you're already behind, really, on what the newest stupid thing is. Uh, In order to keep up with the trends, you almost really have to commit your life to it. Absolutely. To it, which is sadly what most of our teens and even our younger kids are doing. They don't even have to be teenagers anymore, really. Um, just in case you think it's just just the teens, by the way, I'm not just condemning them. If you walk in any restaurant and count the number who are just zombies staring right into their phones, it would stagger you. Uh, this, the next new thing is just intoxicating us, always, because we dare not miss something important like putting our hand backwards on our face. Well, though eating... Laundry detergent may be the newest craze. The idea of new and hip things is not new at all. We see that again in Acts 17. Luke tells us that in Athens, everyone was committed to the new thing. They went about searching and hearing and telling about the new thing all the time. Why? To stay relevant. In order to know how to stay relevant. Because being irrelevant is completely horrible in any culture, in any time. Because we are social people. We value the acceptance of others over just about everything. It is what drives us. Churches even do this, right? 
in order to remain relevant. They do any number of things that we could just continue to list, but we won't. They change their music to adjust to those who might be seeking the Lord, even though Paul tells us no one seeks the Lord. They change their message in order to make it more palatable. Yet what does Jesus tell us? The unbeliever will hate the message because they hate him. How do we navigate in a culture that is desperate for something new when the only thing that we have to give them is something as old as time and even before that, as old as eternity? I think Paul gives us some great insight here in this text. I think it's um, that for the culture that is desperate for something new, he speaks directly to and through those pervasive attitudes and goes directly to the point, which is, of course, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this passage, I want to break it down into three main ideas. First, defining the basics. Second, challenging the assumptions. And then third, watching the harvest. And so with that, let's look at the text, Acts 17, verse 21. Let's stand together as we read from God's Word. Acts 17, starting at verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just a quick review, remember last week we looked at some of the competing philosophies that Paul was dealing with there in Athens, the Epicureans, the Stoics, 
along with those who kind of dabbled in everything, and they accused Paul of being one of those dabblers or babblers is what they called him. Luke defines all of these in verse 21 by just kind of saying this. They would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. It was a summary of what was going on there in the marketplace in Athens. Every older generation always wants to malign the current one as ones who don't read and don't understand, as ones who don't have a grasp on reality. We always want to do that with the current generation, right? But it's been done since the first people. That same argument. We were once the generation that was maligned by the older generation. And now we look at them and say, why don't you understand things? There have always been people who get by socially by dropping names, dropping ideas, knowing nothing about a lot of things, never digging deep, but only appearing to know anything at all, knowing nothing though. In that sort of culture, again, which has always been around, it's nothing new, even though we want to think that it's a new thing. It's not. It's nothing new. The, that, in that sort of culture, will always value a deeper understanding of anything. Time and time again, when I talk to believers, and you guys have had this experience as well, who have never thought deeply about the Bible, who have only looked at it on the surface, have only ever heard it preached on the surface, when they hear a trained expositor open up a text and lay it out before them, they are like a baby that has finally tasted real food. You know that time when you give your baby something real and they're just their eyes open up and they're like, whoa, okay, that's, that's what I want from now on. They want more and more of that. Paul's approach here is very similar to that. Except he's not dealing with believers. All the while, what is he doing? He's digging deep into their basic assumptions about life. He's doing so even using their own writings. And that brings us to the first point, defining the basics. So again, in order to set this section up, Luke defines the people as those searching for new things. The only thing better than hearing about something new is actually getting to tell someone who's never heard it, being that person. We all love to be the person that knows someone or something that others don't. We love to tell that, right? We, we like to be that person. Paul knows this. Therefore, he stands on Mars Hill and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Lots of superlative talk there. He's complimenting the people of Athens. This isn't a, this isn't a uh, insult to them. This is not a criticism. While, of course, Paul wouldn't agree with the gods and goddesses that they worship, he can at least value that they have some interest in spiritual things. And he moves on. Look at verse 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Did some research on this. No one really knows what he's referring to here. No one's ever found an idol with the inscription unknown God. There have been inscription unknown gods, and there's some, there's some thought of where that may have been located. 
But consider the context, consider Luke's lead-in, consider the rest of chapter 17 in the context. It could be that this altar to an unknown God is really just an attempt by the Athenians to make sure that they're covering all their bases. Just in case we've left something out that we that may be a new thing that we don't know about, we're going to put this altar to an unknown God and we're going to worship it as well just to make sure we have worshipped all of them because we don't want to be out of the loop. We definitely see this thing kind of thing today. No stream of thought should ever be left out or disregarded or disrespected, no matter how silly it is, because you might commit the worst of crimes. You might offend someone. So Paul addresses them as religious folks who worship an unknown God. And now he turns it on its head. And he said, this God that you don't know about, I'm about to proclaim him to you. He is the God of the Bible. So notice how he does it. He starts at the very beginning. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. That kind of uh, shot the Athenians in the foot. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So who is this God that Paul proclaims? The God that made everything. He also made you. And he doesn't need you. At all. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So what does this God that made all things and made you and doesn't need you, what does He also do? He determines the days and the steps of man. Not only does He not need you, He doesn't even answer to you concerning your own life. He's already planned it out from the beginning. Verse 27, that they, those people, should seek God. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we move and live and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So what does Paul suggest here in 27? He suggests that that they should seek after God. Well, we know that they don't seek after God. Romans 3.11 says no one seeks after God. This is an absolute exclusion. It means no one. No one means no one. So what does Paul mean here? I think we could go to Romans 1 and read what he means here. Turn with me to Romans 1. Todd began reading from this section this morning. I want to pick up where he left off. Verse 18. And again... Consider what Paul just said to the Athenians. This idea of that they should seek after God. What does he mean? Verse 18 of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. So in order to suppress something, you have to know it, right? Well, he's going to tell us that. For what can be known about God 
is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature have clear, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, the unbeliever. For although they knew God, so this is where I'm, this is where I'm getting to, although they knew Him, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So what did they do? They they know who God is. It's plain to them. They feel around for God by worshiping other things that He creates. They're a great example of this, the Athenians. Their altar to an unknown God, really, is a great example of this feeling around for God. They know God is real, yet they choose to worship something they can control rather than something that they can't or someone that they can't. This feeling around demonstrates they know that God is out there. They just refuse to believe in the one true God. Paul quotes even from their own writers to drive this point home that they know that this is the truth. In Him we live and move and have our being. This is a secular poet that wrote this by the name of Epimenides. He wrote about this God that he knew about. Another quote from a poem called Phenomena. For we are indeed His offspring. Even the secular poets know that there is this God that made us. The main idea that Paul is driving home, there is a God. You're not Him. He's sovereign over you, whether you like it or not. So for us, what do we do with this truth? Why do our evangelistic efforts, if Paul begins with this, with the most secular, most pagan people that he could find, if his evangelistic efforts begin with Genesis 1-1, why do ours begin with anything but these essential truths? Think about the average evangelistic sermon that you've heard. You are special. You are loved by God. Think of the average defense of our faith. What do we want to go to? Really smart people. This is how philosophy aligns with God. This is how science matches with God. This is how logic and reason match with God. What did Paul do? God is creator. God is sovereign. You don't know this. Without God, you have no life. When our message deviates from this basic presentation, it almost becomes, instantly becomes man-centered. Every single time. If it's not centered on God, it starts to point directly to man every single time. Over and over again, we are reminded that man is nothing. He is a mere creation whose steps and days are set out by his creator. And the reason that we don't start 
that approach to talking about Jesus? Why don't we start talking about Jesus when we start talking about Jesus? Because we have a trouble believing the truth ourselves. One of the most important things that we can do in our own evangelism is anchor the truth that we believe in the Scriptures rather than any device that man has come up with. We want to think that these things are cute, things like philosophy and science and logic and reason. If we can just figure those puzzles out and then somehow present that puzzle from a Christian perspective, then maybe we can win some. All of these are good things, but all of these things answer to God, not the other way around. We don't have to fit God into the puzzle of philosophy or science. Science either aligns itself with Him or it's wrong. For man to find God, he doesn't need to come to reason or logic or science first. Man doesn't have a belief problem because of science. Man has a belief problem because he is a fallen sinner. When we get that right, we stop trying to convince them of science and logic and philosophy. And we instead preach the Savior to them, Jesus Christ the only answer to the nature of sin and death in this world. And that brings us to the next point, challenging their assumptions. Look with me at verse 29. Paul is going to drive home this application. He's presented them with truth even from their own words. And he says this, Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So what's going on here? Paul's basically telling them that God isn't something that they can design, like all the other gods in their pantheon. It's the other way around. You were made by God, not God by you. The creature has no right to look at the Creator and say, this is who you are. Only the Creator can define Himself. Isaiah 45.9 says, Woe to him who strives with the one who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or, Your work has no handles. Basically critiquing God's work. What right does the work have to say to the Creator? You did bad things. What is the assumption of the day? God had to be defined by what we say, by how we think. They spend their time in nothing but the hearing and telling of something new. If that's the case, then what is God always doing? Little G, God, He's always changing in order to meet the demands of the culture. One One group there thought that God valued virtue and perseverance over other things. Another said, God only wants you to be happy. Still another says God really wants you to make him out to be whoever you want him to be. So then it would follow, since the cultural view of God is always changing, that the church must also have a changing view of God to keep up, right? If we're out to seek out the culture and to bring them in, we have to change our view with their view. Sadly, this is the view of many in the church today. In order to do that, They have to abandon what God says about himself, which of course never changes, but you see churches doing that left and right. 
nor does it change what God demands of His people. It's always been the same. Just read the words and it doesn't change. Paul gives them these words. Verse 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, He commands all people everywhere, believers, unbelievers, all people, to repent. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. He demands repentance, a turning away from that sinful nature and turning to Him for salvation. Why? Why has He done this? Why has He overlooked the ignorance of the past? Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. He's offering mercy. He's offering salvation. And guess what? He's going to judge the world in righteousness. Well, what did Paul tell us back in Romans 3? No one is righteous. No, not one. By what standard is he going to judge them? Verse 31. By a man whom he has appointed. Who is that man? Of course, Jesus Christ is that man. Turn with me to John 3. We'll hear from Jesus concerning these words. John 3, starting at 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Look at verse 35 quickly. As he sums up, this is actually John the Baptist summing this up. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him. This is exactly what Paul's saying, is it not? Belief in Jesus means eternal life. The one whom he has sent to be that judge in righteousness, that standard. No belief in that man equals judgment. Now John 3, sure, we understood in His first coming, Jesus Christ wasn't coming to judge. Instead, He was coming to die. He was coming to take the place of His people. But in His second coming, it's going to be much different. Turn with me now to Revelation verse, or chapter 19. People who paint this meek little picture of Jesus should read this passage more often. Revelation 19, starting at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, 
and in righteousness. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, pure and white, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Make no mistake, in righteousness he will come to judge the world. In righteousness he will judge and make war. Whose side do you want to be on when that day comes? There will be a reckoning. All people will be judged. Whose side do you want on to do you want for those who you care about to be on? Our message should be the same as Paul's. If you're going to say something to your friends and your loved ones, like God has a plan for your life. At least finish it by saying, and unless you repent, that plan is to be utterly destroyed for all eternity. I know that's not very pretty and nice, but it's the truth. We may think that that message isn't relevant or gentle, but it's the message that we have. Thanks be to God that the way to satisfy the impending wrath of God is to call upon the one who will one day ride upon that white horse of judgment, and his people will ride behind him. Jesus Christ is the one who was appointed by the Father to die for His people. He was risen for the dead so that we can know for certain that He is indeed the Savior, the one true Savior who could defeat sin and death. He did both. And through Him we can have salvation. Does our message look like this, church? Does it start and end with God? The last point, watching the harvest. So notice the three types of responses that Paul gets here. Verse 32. When they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear about this again. Verse 34. Some men joined him and believed. So you have a group that mocks him for their message. Because they just couldn't believe it. One group that says, we want to hear about this again. The last group. We believe two of those people are named here. Does this response seem familiar to you? There will always be those who mock. And let me encourage you with those. I think sometimes those, that's the ones that we focus on the most. They, they bother our sensibility. They hurt that sense of, I want your approval. I want you to like me. That really bothers us when someone doesn't, even when someone mocks the thing that we hold dear. Continue to preach to them if they'll hear it. But if they won't, don't pursue them. God will do the pursuing. But to the ones who want to hear again, and we hear this a lot as well, I want to, I want to hear more about that. I don't really know about that. Let me think about that for a little while. We've all heard that as well. God is the reason that they want to think about that. God is the reason that they want to hear that again. So continue to preach the same message to them. We answer their questions. 
because we're not afraid of questions. We listen to their concerns because we actually do love them. We don't see them as a product, a project, but we see them as people we care about. We do the very thing that Jesus did in his ministry, that Peter and Paul did in their ministries, that faithful men and women have done throughout all of history in their ministries, remembering all the while that it isn't our ability to save them, but Jesus Christ is the one that brings fruit. And to the ones who believe, when that happens, what do we do? We bring them in to the fold. If they don't want to come here, that's fine. We show them places that will accept them and love them and care about them, lead them, disciple them, teach them to go and teach others, to show others the truth. In conclusion, we can talk about this further, I think, in Sunday school if we need to do that, because I know it's a very, very deep well here. But when it comes to our culture, I think it's easy to get called, caught up in the cult of the new, so much so that we could easily let go of these basic truths and because they're not new, and easily let go of them for other who knows what's. Paul, in that place that only was about things that were new, what did he do? He brought them the very old, infinitely old truth of the Word of God. And some believed on that day. Brothers and sisters, let our message not be about the thoughts of man, but instead on the Word of God. God is seeking after those whom He will save. He is using the preaching of the Word as a tool to deliver them. So let us be faithful to preach that message. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we are at best struggling with this and at best sometimes faithful to this. And so Lord, we pray that we would not get caught up in the new, that we would not get caught up in thinking, well, if we just did this or said this, that people would come. They won't. Outside of your direct influence and working in their hearts. So Lord, help us then to be faithful, to preach to everyone. Show us those whom you are working on. Give us insight so that we can preach to those who are around us who want to know, who are searching because you have caused them to search. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to preach the truth of your word in its entirety. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.